Thanks for joining us for Episode 8 of The Tarsans Diplomat, a satirical diplomatic thriller set at the Canadian mission to the European Union. Keith is glad he managed to get the book published, since last week's Brexit vote would have forced a major rewrite and turned it into a multi-decade project. Tarsan's Diplomat is now, in fact, quite a bargain in sterling on Amazon.co.uk. I suggest you order a copy to cheer up your British friends. And now, here's the author, Keith Halliday, with Episode 8. The Tarsan's Diplomat, Chapter 9, Leak I slept in the next day, or more accurately, I slept little but went to work late. I had a long breakfast at Bertrand's. He wanted me to try his new healthy menu, which was only healthier because the pastries were filled with fruit instead of chocolate. My polite refusal of a glass of Cremant de Bourgogne and a cigarette to start the day prompted the usual joking that I must be training for a mission with the Foreign Legion. To distract myself from the bad news at the mission, I turned on my iPad and surveyed my favorites. Was it time to reread some Phineas Finn, catch up on an obscure foreign newspaper, or play a game of online chess? I decided to read the latest from Belarus Today. Julian used to particularly enjoy my translations of Vladimir Fetisov's Minsk Mailbag column. Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau used to say that the New York Times had better foreign coverage than the department, and would amuse himself by asking senior foreign service officers why the department was necessary. He even asked my old friend Lefranc once. Lefranc was carrying his chief's briefcase to a meeting on Parliament Hill and ended up sharing an elevator with Trudeau. Someone has to pay for my subscription to his vestia, is how Lefranc replied, pulling his copy of the Politburo's favorite rag out of his blazer pocket. Trudeau later used the joke to great effect on the undersecretary, who then ordered Lefranc never to say anything interesting to a politician ever again. Having finished Belarus today, I reached for the cafe's copy of one of the big London newspapers. Anything was better than an early appearance at the mission. Suddenly, I gasped, my demi-tasse a quiver. Monsieur? inquired Bertrand earnestly, again proffering the breakfast cognac in a glass. I waved him off. It's just this newspaper, I replied in French. There's an article about Canada in it. He put down the cognac. And in such a prestigious daily. Remarkable indeed, monsieur, replied Bertrand, also in French, as he looked over my shoulder to see the article. Canada seldom rates mention in the journals of record in Brussels. Not many directors general have, when reading the morning paper in bed, scalded the mistress with a startled café au lait because their Canada policy has been leaked to the press. Generally, the headlines are limited to the pesky beavers flood Canadian cheese factory school of journalism. The story was on the upper right side of page three and was improbably titled Canadian Scheme Exposed. Is Calgary near Montreal? asked Bertrand, curious as ever about our distant and obscure land. But I ignored him and read the story. My alarm mounted quickly as the phrases burned themselves into my memory. Leaked Canadian diplomatic cables. Secret plan to fast-track Albertan tar sands oil to Europe. Billion-dollar pipeline deal. And oil executive, a close friend of the Prime Minister. It kept getting worse. I had to blink and restart the second-to-last paragraph, which began as follows. Under the cover of the upcoming Can-Do Canada trade mission, Canada will make major concessions on older trade disputes to ensure tar sands oil is not labeled ultra-high carbon, and excluded from the European market. Perhaps most alarming of all was the wrap-up, saying, senior officials from the Prime Minister's office were already in Brussels to finalize the deal. Bertrand could see I was shaken. He offered the breakfast cognac again, and this time I accepted. I took a deep breath and reread the whole article. The leak looked genuine. 
From the bizarre syntax in the quoted sections, I could tell it was written by an experienced officer who'd grown up using our clunky old classified telex system. But, puzzlingly, even though it seemed obviously addressed to the mission, I'd never seen it before. I downed the rest of my cognac and scrambled for the mission, dodging old ladies and their dogs along the way. I knew that the leak would set the proverbial Belgian riot policeman among the peaceful protesters. I dashed into the mission, threw my coat onto my desk, and stepped briskly towards the ambassador's office. But suddenly Lucille, whom the organization chart claimed was my assistance against all visible evidence, brought me up short. She was pointing at a flashing button on the phone. It's security division. Urgent! I picked up the phone and said, McGregor, before I realized I'd been tricked. Every other officer in the mission had probably already said no to Lucille, having realized that it was the middle of the night in Ottawa, and security division could only be calling with bad news. I looked around for Lucille, but she'd already slipped away. McGregor, it's about time, said a voice. I've been on hold forever. Where is everybody? Doesn't anyone do any work over there? My heart sank as I recognized the voice of Jim Holmes, head of security division. Job titles might give you the impression he was some kind of counterintelligence supremo on a par with the spy catchers at the Foreign Office or State Department. In reality, he was ex-army, and his greatest investigatory triumph had been back during the Bosnian War, when he figured out who was selling the battalion's fruit cocktail supplies to the Serbs. His nickname of Sherlock Holmes was not given in friendly jest. I saw your tell, said Sherlock loudly, using our old slang for italics. His voice boomed out of the earpiece. What's all this about the duty officer's briefcase and changing all the codes and locks from the mission to the official residence? What exactly was in there? The crown jewels? Lucille reappeared out of nowhere and proffered a message from the previous day's outgoing message pack. It was from the mission's administrative officer to security division. I scanned it rapidly and saw that the administrative officer had gone to great lengths to reassure headquarters that he'd taken the loss of the briefcase seriously. The document had a long list of all the locks and codes being changed. He had not realized, as I now saw, that this would merely alert Ottawa to how much had been lost. Sherlock's voice emanated uncontrollably from the handset as he demanded that I email the list of the briefcase's contents to him. I watched Lucille's lips as she mouthed the words, The list was in the briefcase. I can't, Jim, I said. The list was in the briefcase, and the whole problem is that the briefcase has been stolen. A long silence ensued as Sherlock worked through the logic. What a mess, said Sherlock, before lecturing me on various chapters of the security manual. I'd almost gone to sleep when he said something that snapped me back to the alert. I'd better go to Brussels myself. I'll be on tonight's flight. I pulled the handset away from my ear and stared at it in horror. There were so many reasons why this was a disastrous idea. I was about to figure out which one to start with when Sherlock broke in again. You have got to take security more seriously, McGregor. It's a cruel world out there, not all cocktail parties and fancy lunches. It's not my bloody fault, I snapped, but Sherlock had already hung up. I looked around for Lucille or the admin officer, but everyone had gone into hiding. I stepped into the hallway and could hear animated voices still coming from the ambassador's office. But my desire to engage in idle speculation and blamestorming about the leak had suddenly evaporated. Plus, if I showed up, I'd be obliged to tell them about Sherlock's impending arrival, and they'd blame me for that, too. Instead, I retreated into my office. I closed the door and put on some Mozart piano concertos, some of the later ones that soothed the nerves. How had all this happened, I wondered. The week before, I was safely in Ottawa. My underling and I were completely on top of the Moldovan jam industry's various schemes to circumvent our sugar tariffs. And in the evenings, I could go to a concert or organize a clandestine encounter with LaFranc, 
to drink scotch and discuss spy novels out of his daughter's health-conscious sight. Now, Julian had been murdered. I was the lead officer on a very shaky-looking trade mission, and things were starting to leak, and the least competent security officer in the G7 was coming to investigate. I decided to immerse myself in the files. That would get my mind off things. I opened my safe and extracted the Can Do Canada file. It was crisp, clean, and thin. There were no misunderstood memoranda of understanding or forgotten aid memoirs. No snide inquiries from the Access to Information Office about why it was necessary to black out every word except prepositions. No backdated memos blaming other divisions for what, in retrospect, was inevitable disaster. And no increasingly plaintive notes to file from officers who were transferred to French language training and never heard from again. It was a blank slate. I refilled my fountain pen with Bleu Nuit from Herbin, which you can't get in Ottawa, and got to work. The file started with Smedling, whose fingerprints seemed to be all over Can-Do Canada. There were also notes from Julian, which were indescribably sad to read. I persevered with my file reading and thought about Can-Do Canada. If Samuel Johnson had worked at the Foreign Office, he would have said that ministerial visits were the triumph of hope over experience. We hope for results and the attention of important people back at the Capitol. We usually end up with embarrassment and recrimination. I sighed. Like it or not, the minister would be on the ground for 22 hours in Brussels, and we would have to deal with it. The first problem would be the advance man. Ever wondered what happened to the boy at school who had much worse marks than you, but somehow talked you into sticking your tongue to a frozen lamp post? He's probably an advance man. Like crows falling out of the sky in a Shakespeare play, the arrival of the advance man foreshadows imminent doom. He, and very rarely she, struts around your office and sits in your chair while snottily pointing out all the details you forgot. Each advance man has his own obsessive demands about limos, hotels, agendas, meeting attendees, spousal arrangements, dietary restrictions, press conference backdrops, podium heights, and so on. As tiresome as it is, I have grudgingly found something to admire in the obsessive perfection of the advance man. One rookie advance man once accepted Dunscap's assurances that the podium was up to standard, only to discover too late that it had no lip on the bottom edge. When the minister raised his hands in the working together gesture the gesticulation consultant had been coaching him on, his speech slid off the podium and fluttered like a verbose snow flurry into the first row of the audience. Since the minister didn't know anything about Canada-Poland agricultural trade issues and hadn't read his speech in advance, he was forced to do a reprise of one of his campaign speeches about single mothers in Winnipeg. It's people like Dunscap who've spawned the hurtful motto of the advance man, never trust the local embassy boobs. Once the minister arrives, the advance man drops any remaining veneer of civilization and is revealed in all his feral wonder. Before the chronically overbooked schedule begins, there's always a briefing for the minister. It's the 15 minutes of fame for the local embassy boobs. Competition to speak, or even just flip the slides and nod knowingly, is bruising. As stage fright overwhelms the briefers, and they lead the jet-lagged minister into thickets of irrelevant detail, the advance man paces violently at the back of the room, checking his watch and snapping pencils in frustration. Then, once the final embarrassments of the briefing have been endured, the advance man leads the minister and entourage into a stampede to the limos. The entire day is spent trying to make up the 15 minutes lost at the morning briefing. If you're in, enough to be in one of the cars, you spend the day careening from meeting to meeting with your trench coat stuck in hastily slammed limo doors, eating lint-covered mints out of your trench coat pocket because you've missed lunch, and wishing desperately for a pissoir. Mishaps begin to claim your colleagues one by one. 
Smith is sent back to the embassy to pick up a confidential message from Ottawa that may, or may not, exist, and never returns. Bouchard slips away to the bathroom during a break, and emerges to hear the advanced man yelling, Forget the twink! We're four minutes off sked! Accompanied by the Doppler effect of Mercedes engines receding into the distance. I realized suddenly I was sweating and breathing heavily. I took a deep breath and returned to the dossier. The bottom document on the file was Dorf's original proposal for a ministerial visit to Brussels. I had to admire it. It had something flashy and attractive for every possible bureaucratic stakeholder, from the minister on down. In fact, in places it read like a storyline pitch to a Hollywood studio. The first scene involved pre-meetings of experts from Canadian industries suffering from European entanglements including asbestos, lumber, genetically modified canola, furs, ceiling, and the tar sands. This allowed Dorf to tell dozens of officials, ministerial staff, MPs, and industry organizations that he was working hard on their behalf. The experts would play the role of the young beauty tied to the bad guy's train tracks. Other set-piece scenes included a discussion forum at the inevitable Canadian Studies Centre at a local university, some meetings at the European Parliament, and a media lunch. Then, on the second day, the minister would arrive for a climactic showdown with the sneering villains at the European Commission. There'd be a dinner, hosted at the ambassador's official residence, where the experts would be given the opportunity to fawn over their rescuing hero. The final scene was the minister jetting into the sunset on a white executive jet. It all sounded good, but I wondered what the critics would think once it had been staged. That's a wrap for episode 8. Thanks for listening to The Tarzan's Diplomat. I hope you enjoyed it. For more information or to leave a comment, visit keithhalliday.com or send an email to me at khalliday at tarzansdiplomat.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends. Check iTunes next week for episode 9.